0: You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime, in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today.
1: This is episode 3.4, Compulsory Education, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I'm just so, so tired.
0: And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and just sign me on to Tom's comments.
1: From here in New York City, it seems like the whole world is on fire. We continue to face injustice and inequality, police brutality, fascism, global warming, and a pandemic that is still killing us by the thousands. Our only choice, our only option, is to unite and protect each other because we will forge a better world together, or not at all. We usually try to make the introductions fun. Sorry, it's a bad week.
0: We are, however, taking our happy moments where we can find them. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 405 patrons and subscribers. Wow. We we broke 400, yes. Woo, it's the high point of the week. (laughs) Uh, Thank you all for getting us here. And special thanks go out to our newest supporters William R., John M., Meat Based Beowulf Cluster, Devil Manlet, Genevieve P., Matthew S., Matthew L., Sasha E.R., Fruitzo, Looney Spoon, Robert A., Stephen A.F., Angry Flick, Misha S., Casper O.W., Sir L., Noir, Chili Flakes, Joseph B., Rebecca S., Ash B., Alex H, Cryptcal, Matthew L, Trey N, and Seth H. I know some of you are returning patrons. Welcome back and thank you. This podcast would not be possible without all of your support. As of this episode's release date, Saturday, August 29th, there are just three days until MSB's second podversary. Secure one of our limited edition patron-exclusive Year 2 pins for yourself by becoming a patron at the $5 level or higher by September 1st. For pictures of the pins and a rundown of our other great patron rewards, visit GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon.
1: And now back to Gundam. This week we are covering Gundam Double Zeta Episode 4, Judo's Decision, or... Judo no Ketsui. After the recap and our talk back, we have part two of our book report on the origin and meaning of the name Shangri-La. But first, let's tune our receivers to Radio Free Shangri-La and see what's on.
2: Good morning, space cadets! Do you crave adventure, danger, romance, and scientific mystery in space? Then prepare yourself for the amazing intergalactic chronicles of Strobe Flanagan, Night of Space! This week, episode one, bang, zoom, the hole in space devours all! Deep in Space A sleek silver rocket races among the stars, keeping pace with the remains of a derelict star cruiser of unfamiliar design. On the rocket's bridge, a crew of two studies magnified images of the wreck on an enormous view screen. Computer, analyze those marks in section B12.
3: Captain! Captain! Those look like scorch marks from some kind of immensely powerful heat ray.
2: I think they are scorch marks, Lieutenant Vale, but we won't know for sure until the computer finishes its chemical analysis. It should be ready any moment-
4: We are receiving a priority orange direct message from Earth Federation Fleet Command.
2: Let's hear it, computer.
3: The human version, computer.
1: This is Fleet Command to Captain Strobe Flanagan aboard the Federation Science Vessel tomorrow. Our sensors have detected a Class X gravitational anomaly in your vicinity. Abandon your current mission and investigate the anomaly with all haste. The coordinates are 1197, Mark Delta.
2: Okay, Lieutenant. We're approaching the coordinates. Watch out for the anomaly, and let's keep our distance.
3: We're getting data now, sir. I'll put it up on the screen. This is astonishing. I've never seen anything like this before. I have. What? Where, sir? At your
1: father's lab.
3: Oh, you can't mean- Yes,
1: don't you see, Vale? It's exactly as your father predicted. This can only be-
3: A wormhole. Oh, Captain, we need to get this data back to the Earth Federation Science Academy as soon as possible. This will totally vindicate my father's legacy. They said he was mad and drove him out of the Academy. Toward the end, he was forced to live over a scrapyard performing experiments with whatever junked equipment he salvaged. But now they'll see. Now they'll all see. Computer, plot
4: a course for- We are receiving a transmission. It is coming from the Anomaly.
2: But that's possible.
4: This is Supreme General Lady Mackam Harm of the League of Free Planets to all Space Knights. Admiral Evil, the Illuminated Oppressor of Space, has sent his white devils to kidnap Princess Miranda, true heir of space. They're besieging our asteroid palace. Help us, noble Space Knights. You're our only hope.
3: The League of Free Planets? Space Knights? Why devils? The admiral evil. What is this nonsense?
1: Perhaps it is nonsense, Lieutenant. But perhaps it merely sounds like nonsense because the wormhole has brought this message to us across an impossible distance of space and time. I'll admit,
2: I'm intrigued by the message. And although I can't explain why, the warm yet commanding voice of this lady, Macklin Harm, moves me in ways I cannot begin to explain. But suddenly...
3: Captain, mobile suit's approaching. They don't match anything in our database, but, but don't they kind of look like Gundam types? I've got a bad feeling about this. They're opening fire!
2: Evasive maneuvers. Engines to fall.
3: No! You'll bring us too close to the anomaly. We're being sucked in!
2: As the agile science vessel jukes and weaves, it falls into the gravity well of the wormhole. Time and space expand and contract beyond the event horizon, and in mere moments the ship and all traces of her crew are gone. Tune in next week to discover the fate of Strobe Flanagan, Vale Meadows, Computer, and the galaxy itself in episode two hey the
4: princess we all just wanted to say again how grateful we are to have a broadcaster with your level of experience helping us get our radio station off the ground but well it's just that some of the other actors are a little concerned about the um you know the messaging in this latest show the themes sort of thing?
1: The messaging? It's just a space adventure show for kids. Wow, cool spaceship. That kind of thing. Don't worry about it.
4: Don't you think it's kind of pro I mean, don't you think calling them Space Princess Miranda and Lady Mockum Harm is kind of on the nose? And then in the script here for episode two, you have a, quote, wise-cracking alien sidekick named... Zabi.
1: Oh, that stuff is just there to keep the sponsors happy. And it's actually pronounced Zabibi. Zabibi!
4: Um, about that. The main sponsors for Intergalactic Chronicles are Dungar Cologne, Space Bed and Battleship, Axis Today, and the Dozel Zabi Memorial Fund for the Arts. Do you really think we should be taking money from the Zabis?
1: It's not like the Federation is funding the arts. And now the recap for Judo's decision.
0: Towering over the soldiers around him, local junk dealer Gemon Bajak declares his desire to take on the Zeta Gundam. He arrived unannounced in the Geze, a custom mobile suit he built himself, and seems unconcerned by the guns trained on him. I've been a fan of Axis ever since you all took out the gate of Zedan, he declares. Against Goten's concerns, Mashima, keen to win the locals over to the Axis cause, agrees. Fa, Shinta, and Kum go to Judo to try to convince him to join the Argama and become a pilot. He seems resistant and says he'll come if they can use the Argama as a base, with Bicha, Ino, and Mondo expressing their interest in getting to hang out on the Ayug ship. It's not an amusement park, Fa replies, clearly frustrated. Then we have nothing to talk about, Judo says, before running off, his friends taking off after him. Contrary, he has decided to go to school for once, and Shintan, Kum follow him. Lina assures Fa that she will try to convince her brother to become a pilot, and asks that the Argama not give up on him just yet. In town, Elle pulls over her car when she spots Fa and Lena walking down the street. Earlier, L was in the spaceport spying on the Endra and saw three mobile suits take off. There's only one place they could be going, to the Argama. When Elle steps out of the car, Fa jumps into the driver's seat, yelling, sorry, behind her as she rushes back to the Argama retrieve the Zeta and defend the ship. El and Lina run to the school to get Judo. Interrupting roll call, Judo and his friends saunter into their respective classes to the surprise of all their teachers. While they talk, sleep, and otherwise disrupt class, Shinta and Kum play around with some line markers they find, leaving new chalk lines all over the school's ball fields. El arrives yelling up at the school's window that Judo needs to come out, three mobile suits are going to attack the Argama. But on their way there, Gemon looks down and sees that, from the air, Shintankum's chalk drawings look like the letters Z and G. He is certain this is a challenge from the Zeta Gundam and takes off toward the school. The two wingmen, certain it would look bad for them to get involved, hold back. When he lands, Gemon yells out his own challenge to the Zeta and threatens to destroy the school and kill everyone inside unless the Zeta Gundam shows itself. Amid panicking students and teachers, it seems Judo has a plan. He takes some of his friends up to the roof, causing a distraction by shouting insults and banging on buckets and drums. The rest of the group sneak outside, wrap a hose around the Geze's legs, and attach it to a car. Once secure, L drives the car away, pulling the Geze to the ground. Their celebrations are brief. It is easy enough for the Geze to get up again, and Gemon attacks, destroying the stairs back down into the school building and leaving Judo and friends trapped on the roof. The Argama heard Gemon's threats, and so Fa arrives in the Zeta ready to fight. After leading him away from the populated part of the colony, she suffers a moment of hesitation Using the Zeta's full strength would cause too much damage, and she will have to fight very carefully. Her hesitation gives Gemon an opening, and he knocks the Zeta to the ground. The cockpit door flies open and shorts, refusing to close again. Locked in close combat, the two suits struggle against each other until Gemon strikes with an electrified baton. The Zeta's insulation fails, sending electricity crackling through the cockpit. Fa screams in pain, and the Zeta falls to the ground, trailing smoke. The kids from Shangri-La try to help. Judo taunts Gemon into following him, and once into position, the rest of the crew knock down a globe-shaped oil tank, sending it rolling directly at the Geze. While Gemon is eventually able to toss the tank into the nearby river, the distraction gives Judo time to check on Fa. She regains consciousness, groggy but otherwise alright, but the Geze is running toward them again, and she stands the Zeta up as quickly as possible. Unfortunately for Judo, he is still standing on it when this happens, and he stumbles and staggers in an effort not to fall. As she fights Gemon, he clings to the outside of the mobile suit, being shaken back and forth. With a thrust of his baton, Gemon sends the Zeta tumbling to its back again, and Judo falls into the open cockpit, directly into Fa's lap. Taking over the controls, he insists that she can either get out or stay where she is, but he is determined to pilot the Zeta. With the Zeta's hand, he lowers her partway then drops her unceremoniously to the ground. The two mobile suits begin to punch at each other so fast that their arms blur. Gemon still seems to be getting the better of the Zeta, when all of a sudden his vision blurs. The spinning cockpit of the Geze has given him vertigo. And when he stumbles, Judo has all the opening he needs to take a beam saber and lop off the Geze's arms. All his earlier bravado gone, Gemon begs and pleads. I was only doing what I was asked. Some guy on the Endra threatened and forced me to do it, he whines. Back on the Endra, Mashima is angry at the outcome of the latest attack, but Goten recommends patience. After all, the new mobile suit prototypes will be ready soon and will need testing. What better test than sending them after Ayu? Realizing that Mashima won't stop coming after the Zeta, Judo agrees to be its pilot. At first, he intends to keep it with him without going to the Argama, but his friends remind him he has nowhere to store a mobile suit, how could he hide it? And the maintenance would be difficult and expensive without proper tools. He finally acquiesces to return the mobile suit to the Argama.
1: This is a bad episode. I do not like this episode.
0: Well, there are parts of it that I enjoyed, uh, from a sort of narrative perspective, I agree with you. <laughs> they need to get Judo to agree to join the Argama. That's their sort of narrative leap that they're trying to make. How mm-hmm. to get this kid, who has no reason to want to be involved, involved. And they decide the way to do that is to make it clear that Mashima is going to keep coming after the Zeta.
1: When you say that that's what they decide to do, you mean that's what the writers of the show have decided to do? Yeah. Because the characters within the course of this episode have their own separate plan for how to get Judo involved.
0: Yeah, I mean the writers. What is presented as (laughs) Judo's motivation for finally joining is the realization that, oh, Mashima is not going to stop coming after the Zeta. And so if Judo wants to prevent that, which for some reason he does...
1: He does seem to have a sort of generalized affection for the people of the Argama. He's kind of on their side. Uh, But more particularly, Mashima going after the Argama threatens uh, Judo, his friends, the colony, to some degree, his little sister.
0: But would it if he didn't get involved? Like, wouldn't Judo and his friends be safe as long as they just stopped trying to steal or control the Zeta?
1: Well, in this episode, they went to school and ended up getting threatened by Gemon Bajak,
0: so, giving them a little bit of a benefit of the doubt here, I think the whole Gemon storyline is pretty unnecessary. Uh but the one thing it does is highlights for us the sort of people who might be attracted to Axis because he's not some true believer. He doesn't think the zombies should rule space. Uh he likes that they slammed a like base into another base to destroy it
1: he likes when they do big flashy things he likes that they can pay him you know he's in it for himself and
0: quite possibly he feels like he's read the wind if he suspects that they're going to win or suspects that they will take control of Shangri-La for some portion of time allying himself with them may feel like a practical decision
1: sure And his behavior at the end of the episode, after he has been defeated, when he uh, sort of supplicates Judo, begging for forgiveness and blaming it all on Mashima, like, that makes it clear that Gemon is just a sort of self-serving liar, and there's no reason to trust any particular thing that he says. Um, I do actually kind of like the decision to include Gemon Bajak as a character here, for the reason that I think he shows... What might become of Judo if he continues on this course? Mm. You know, Gemon is a sort of oafish buffoon, but he's also a, a Shangri-La native. He is a, a grown-up junk dealer. And he's got the same kind of uh, rough mannerisms. He talks like a gangster. You know, if Judo doesn't become a pilot cadet, which is the choice that is being presented to him in this episode, maybe he becomes a, a Gemon. And what a terrible fate that would be for a kid who seems so promising.
0: He's also yet another example of sort of horrible adults. Uh, In particular, the sort of petty tyranny that he revels in. He loves the idea of having subordinates and getting to order some of these pilots around.
1: Having them call him master. Master.
0: He threatens to have them fired, which I'm fairly certain he can't do.
1: (laughs) I think that just reflects how he behaves in his business as a junk dealer. He probably is a total tyrant with his employees. He probably threatens to fire them for every imaginable slight.
0: So if you like them, including Gemon, why do you think this is a bad episode?
1: For me, there's two problems with this episode. The one is like the big structural problem of it all feels kind of pointless Um, and the other is a, what I'll call the Mirai Kisses Slager problem, <laughs> where an episode that has um, many good aspects is just totally derailed by one really bad one. Um, and this is even worse than Mirai Kisses Slager because Mirai Kisses Slager was in the middle of one of the Solomon episodes. It was a really good episode overall. And then there's just that that hard swerve in the middle of the episode where you go, what, what? And you spend the entire rest of the episode raging over it. Uh, In this one, it's basically the episode-long humiliation of Fa. Like, every character and every scene she's in is about, like, degrading Fa, uh, making Fa look weak and dumb and bad. Uh, And then there's the bit where she's fighting Gemon, and it gets super-duper explicitly rapey in the language and in the, the way it's drawn. And that just, like, is repulsive.
0: Yes. I. Uh, the word I used in my notes was the indignity. Yeah. Uh, Fa is always exactly as good a pilot as they need her to be for the purposes of the story. She has very few characteristics that are tied to her as a character rather than tied to the story. She's like an instrument <laughs> for moving the narrative rather than a character a lot of the time. And while I have liked Judo for most of the story so far, uh, seeing him be very critical of this pilot when he is not very good (laughs) and when, in theory, Fa should be better than him at this and we've seen her be better than him at this, just really... uh,
1: Yeah, see, I think it's less that Fa is incredibly malleable unto the situation and more that the two different writers more than in any other aspect of the show have completely different conceptions of who fa is and what she's capable of i mean take one guess at who wrote this episode this is another of the endo episodes and like humiliating fa is a thing that he apparently loves to do and this isn't just in her actual performance in the battle and like you said judo does say oh she's That's a bad pilot. She's so indecisive. Um, But earlier in the episode, like Bright reverts to being kind of a jerk to Fa when she goes to get in the Zeta. Bright is like, ah, take the Zeta and give it to Judo. And Fa's like, I am a pilot too. (laughs) And and Bright's like, well, I guess. Big eye roll. Look to audience. Laugh track ensues. Like, it's just so obnoxious. And the bit when um, Judo has Fa in the Zeta's hand and he's like lowering her to the ground and at the last minute he just like dumps her out just feels so excessive.
0: I agree with you completely that they seem to really enjoy emphasizing like this is why women shouldn't do stuff. They're bad at it. Um, (laughs) That particular scene I kind of like because I included it with the scene of Judo still being on the Zeta when Fa stands it up, Mm -hmm. and a couple of other scenes that the show has had so far where I think Double Zeta actually portrays the way in which human beings would interact with these huge machines more realistically than some Mm. of the previous shows. The fact that when Fa is carrying judo's friends to him it's kind of unstable and she's like you guys need to hold really still and they're like we're trying and this is really scary whereas other times we've seen people carried by mobile suits they sort of act like it's nothing yeah and judo being caught on the mobile suit when fa stands it up because of course she has to prepare to fight uh and that he's maybe trying to lower her gently but he's not good enough at this and doesn't realize how far from the ground he is when he tips her out okay i saw it more as part of like what would it actually be like to be in, in a human body interacting with one of these giant machines. Um
1: I can accept that. Alright. I'm I'm convinced. Especially because of the recurring joke they do about the cockpit hatch not closing. Like every episode has a cockpit hatch that doesn't close. That jams. And, yeah. And so that destroys the barrier between the like outside world and the suit and makes the suit less of a uh like a giant idealized mecha body and more of a actual machine that exists in the world. But that doesn't change my overall feeling about this episode and its abominable treatment of Fa.
0: You have my complete agreement.
1: So with that out of the way, <laughs> with our spleen sufficiently vented, perhaps we can actually talk about some of the other aspects of the episode. And since I started by saying that this is a bad episode and I don't like it, I'm now going to tell you the part that I like the most. <laughs> which is that bit in the middle where for just a couple of seconds, we get this musical montage of Shinta and Coom playing on the field of the uh, high school with those field marking, like chalk bag pushing things. I don't know what they're called. Field markers, probably. It's just a lovely little bit of them like playing around while Being the kids children. Are in school.
0: <laughs> yeah, a couple of things about that whole setup. Uh, Fa does not seem at all concerned about Shinta and Coom's whereabouts. <laughs> when they take off, <laughs> she's just walking with Lena, like, hmm, let's think about this judo situation.
1: <laughs> I mean, at first she does say, oh, you'll get lost. But once they're gone, she's like, well, <laughs> they've survived a lot so far. I can probably trust them to make it out of this one okay. And this confirms your theory from a couple of episodes back that there is, in fact, a school that Judo is enrolled in and ought to be showing up to.
0: It's much nicer than I expected. I was expecting something much more like the school from Akira. <laughs> yeah. uh, a place that's basically all delinquents and run down and where the teachers are completely checked out and don't care about who's there or not there. It is, in fact, a very nice building. A bunch of the rooms have flowers... The desks, we get a very brief look, but there seems to be some sort of electronic stuff built into the desk. Uh, most of the students, none of them are drawn to look like punks, you know? Mm-hmm. They're they're like normal kids. Giving us yet another insight into his character, uh, his sort of overwhelming nonchalance <laughs> when he comes in during roll call. He's got his arms up, hands behind his head, just <laughs> sort of like saunters in, in the middle. Uh, bicha promptly goes to sleep on his desk
1: <laughs> and judo saunters in um nonchalantly but he does call particular attention to himself
0: oh yeah it's not subtle
1: he's not like trying to sneak in
0: ah one of the other things about that scene with shinta and kum, they may very well have been trying to write a z and a g on purpose given that uh shinta tells kum follow me he probably is trying to write something specific Uh, But obviously, they're just writing letters because they love the Zeta Gundam and they're on the crew of the Argama. It's not meant to be a challenge. It's not meant for anybody else to notice it. They're just having fun. But Gemon sees it and interprets it as a challenge. And so I do wonder, is this idea of miscommunication and misinterpretation going to be a running theme through Mm. all of Double Zeta? Because we had Mashima sort of misinterpreting everything Judo did. In their initial fights. Uh, and now we have Gemon misinterpreting something Shintankum have done. And that this might particularly be about miscommunication between adults and children.
1: Hmm, That may be so. We'll have to keep an eye on that as we go forward.
0: Somewhat counter to the characterization of Fa in these episodes as sort of inept. Uh, we have L who is not only spying on the Axis ship by herself, uh, when she gets caught, manages to fight her way out pretty easily. You know, she's very quick on her feet, Mm -hmm. quick thinking, quite capable.
1: She says something to the guard right before she clocks him that catches him off guard. And I think she's pretending uh, that she was like waiting for him. Yeah. She's acting like he stood her up on a date. Yep. And then, kaplow. Yeah, well, this is not the first time that Elle has been their sort of designated spy and watch person. She's good at it, but I find that in an episode like this, it's really hard for me not to focus on the gendered nature of that duty.
0: She's also their driver. That's true. M- much of the time. I think Becha also drives for them sometimes, but her treatment just feels different than Fa's treatment to me. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder about why that is. Yeah. I mean, that's something we just may not have a clear picture of until we see more of the show. We haven't seen that many episodes yet. Yeah. Women get done dirty a lot in Gundam and other things. Life. I don't- <laughs> yep. It goes entirely uncommented and unexamined in this episode, and I hope that's not true for the rest of the series, but uh, the Arkama is happy to recruit a child soldier. Eager, even.
1: Well, you know, high-spirited youths are a resource in war.
0: Which is what Mashima says. But our theoretical good guys uh, are 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 doing this. Even Fa, who you know, is not that much older herself and is now sort of perpetuating the trauma that she's lived through on other children. <laughs> uh,
1: but Fa has never been particularly reluctant about uh, becoming a soldier. It was something she really wanted to do. When Camille tried to stop her, she rejected that. Fa very much has the attitude that, Regardless of your age as a kid, you need to engage with what's happening, engage with the larger political world and fight for what's right.
0: I was also struck by Lena's attitude toward him joining. Uh, It's very much like a parent who sends their child to military school.
1: You need some structure in your life. Right,
0: like you need some order and discipline. And obviously the military will do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And in some ways, he's sort of ambivalent, right? He is not particularly interested in order and structure or any curtailing of his personal freedom. But if he could somehow be affiliated with the Argama and still enjoy the freedom that he has now, he's like, sure, why not? And I think that's sort of what they're getting at when he's like, well, can we make it our base? Mm-hmm. Basically, can my friends and I hang out there? And I'll do some pilot stuff, and I won't, and I'll I'll like live my life, but I'll do it at the Argama <laughs> if that's what you want, which is obviously not acceptable.
1: I mean, that's a little bit like how Camille tried to play things toward the beginning of Zeta when he wanted to pilot or not according to his own desires.
0: And by the end, it almost seems... Like a foregone conclusion. Like he is determined to keep the Zeta. He doesn't seem to be trying to steal it anymore, but he feels a sort of possessiveness about it. Like it's his Zeta, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And having accepted that feeling, he doesn't really have a choice. As all his friends and the people around him point out, he doesn't have anywhere he could hide the Zeta. It would be prohibitively expensive for him and his friends to try to like service and maintain it. So,
1: (laughs) (laughs) And he, crucially, no longer wants to sell it.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting sort of transition that he goes through that happens in the undercurrents of events, right? Mm -hmm. He never talks about that change of feeling. It just happens over the course of an episode that he goes from, I'm going to steal that machine and sell it, to I can't let anything happen to that machine. (laughs) I confess I don't totally buy it. It doesn't feel completely natural to me. I don't feel as though the the show has made a great case for why he feels the way he does now uh, and is no longer concerned about the money. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm shocked that he would agree to all of this without being like, well, what are my wages? What do you pay me? Like, (laughs) This is a kid who lives on the edge, right? He lives in a state of financial precarity. And he hasn't asked about any material concerns. He hasn't asked if they're going to pay him. He hasn't asked if they're going to take care of his sister. He hasn't asked, well, what's the food like, <laughs> you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for an episode called Judo's Decision, he doesn't really seem to make much of a decision and very little attention seems to be paid to his decision-making process.
0: If the point of this episode was to show us how Judo reached the point of joining the Argama, I don't feel like the writing really got us there
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I mean obviously it's happened but it didn't feel as natural and realistic as I would have liked as character motivation goes (laughs) can we talk about Yazan for a second (laughs)
1: Yazan who appears for all of like <laughs> 10 seconds in this episode he's, for some reason.
0: He's got two scenes. I can imagine a reason that they included him, and I hope I'm right, but I might
1: not be. All right, what is it?
0: So basically, we get a quick flash of him in an alleyway. He notices Fa walking down the street. He looks super creepy. He's wearing a sort of disguise almost, you know, an overcoat with the collar turned up and a big hat.
1: I mean, um, it makes him look like a bandit from a Western movie.
0: It does. Uh, and they put really dark shadows on his face. He looks extra creepy.
1: He does like a weird smile. They zoom in on his teeth.
0: And then during the early part of the Gemon fight, when Gemon has his mobile suit outside the school, Yazan rushes up, twirling a staff. <laughs> unclear who he means to attack here, but he falls down an open manhole. And then a bunch of debris falls on it and traps him in the sewers (laughs) or whatever. What I'm hoping is that he will constantly be on the edge of events and somehow prevented from getting involved throughout the whole series. (laughs) That this sort of stuff is just going to keep happening to him every time he tries to attack Judo, or I don't know who he's trying to attack. But basically that absolutely ridiculous, chancy things are going to keep happening to him on the edge of the main events of the show.
1: That would be a good gag, or kind of like, my cabbages Exactly. sort of background thing. Yeah, I think in this case, he's planning to use the staff to do a kind of pole vault. I think he's trying to steal Gemon's mobile suit.
0: Oh.
1: Yeah, I think that's what he's about.
0: Imagine for a moment the sort of person in this world who devotes the time and resources necessary to build their own mobile suit. <laughs>
1: it's
0: like building a sports car for fun. Yeah. Or a tank, <laughs> more accurately.
1: People do that sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah, but let's think about that person.
1: <laughs> sure. I think this episode gives us a great picture of Gimon Bajak as a person.
0: And he very specifically says to Judo and his friends how dare you attack adults? Oh, yeah. Like he's threatened to murder them and all their school fellows and teachers and destroy their school. And he's still appalled that young people would have the audacity to fight adults. <laughs> Something I want to touch on very briefly with regards to Mashimak, because for the most part, he is just like we've seen him in previous episodes. However, he sets up a little shrine <laughs> to Haman. yeah. And the way that he prays at it and the words that he uses have decidedly like Christian connotation. The comparison of himself to a lamb, Mm -hmm. uh, the hands clasped in front of him, even just sort of the the wording and form of his prayer.
1: And yet... There are also elements of Pure Land Buddhism in there as well. Uh, using the flower as his like focus point for the prayer in order to bring his attention to Haman and then repeating her name at the end, like he's doing the Nembutsu, yeah. uh, is like something out of Pure Land Buddhism, where the idea is you look at uh, an image or the name of the Buddha, and then you, you pray and you recite the name of the Buddha over and over again. In order to call upon the guidance of the Buddha. And of course, this also, I think, connects to the way he thinks about Haman in every difficult circumstance.
0: She's the voice of reason in his head.
1: She's his his guidance, his savior.
0: I do love the animation of him floating cross-legged through the, <laughs> the air mm-hmm. of his room. It's also very funny that Gotten eavesdrops and then gets caught eavesdropping. Uh...
1: Yeah, the whole sequence with Gotten and... Uh, Mashima is hysterical. It's a really well done bit of comedy between the two of them.
0: And at the end of the episode when Mashima prays to Haman again, Gotten face palms in the background. Uh, and then <laughs> this felt like a bit of a nod to fans who were like, we haven't seen a cool new mobile suit in ages, just Gimon's suit. Like where are all the cool mobile suits? Because Gotten is, oh, sir, you know, maybe we should have some patience. Soon, the new mobile suits will be assembled and we'll need to test them. (laughs) Are you ready for a parade of new mobile suits? I am
1: so ready for a parade of new mobile suits. Are you ready to learn all of their names? Never. And then remember them forever? No. And recognize them every time they're on screen? Nope. Kanbate, Nina. Do your best. I refuse? A couple of quick notes about the colony. First... They mention during the sequence when Fa steals El's car that the colony is kept in spring-like weather all year round. Lena blames the Colony Corporation for being lazy, Uh, although I think a few episodes back when they were introducing Shangri-La, they mentioned that the age uh, and poor maintenance of the colony have caused the weather control system to break down, so it may just be stuck in spring-like, which as weather patterns go is not that bad. Spring is one of the better seasons, but um, that may mean that it's just like pollen season year-round.
0: Also, does that mean the colonies are administered by corporations, not governments?
1: It does seem to be a kind of private-public partnership.
0: I wonder if the colony itself, like the infrastructure, is almost like a utility that's run by a corporation.
1: I think that's probably the system we're looking at here. There's definitely some kind of government structure at the level of Uh, The side, and there's probably one at the level of the colony itself, but the relationship between that governing structure and the colony corporation, uh, that relationship is unclear to me. The second note. While the class divide is not nearly as clear in this episode as it has been in previous ones, there is a, a pan across the colony where it goes from green, beautiful, into brown and then into black. Uh, And this is the transition that we get from uh, the beginning of the episode at the hangar with Mashima and Gemon into the scene with Judo and his friends in the slum. And so we have like a really clear artistic visual just color palette distinction from the nice part of the colony to the rundown part of the colony. And right after that pan, they cut into a picture of a like... A pothole full of water and litter.
0: When Lena goes to buy milk and the woman at the shop says, oh, it's been sort of hard to come by and we don't get very much. You know, she mentions that priority has been going to the hospital and the spaceport and whether there's intentional control of how resources are allocated or whether it's a matter of having enough money or connections, or perhaps, uh, there's some bribery, uh, at play. Uh, Beyond just the ability to pay for things, there is a difference in access for people.
1: And this is especially significant because the reason why the spaceport and the hospital are consuming more milk, among other foodstuffs, we can assume, is because they're more active right now. And the reason they're more active right now is because on the one hand, the port is servicing the Endra. And on the other hand, the hospital is taking care of all the wounded crew members from the Argama. So it's actually directly the arrival of these outsiders, Ayug on the one hand, and Axis Zeon on the other hand, that is depriving Lena of milk. There was, I think, a sneaky little joke in this episode that only works if you're listening to the Japanese and know a little bit of background about the show. Uh, you may not have noticed this, but when Gemon is threatening to destroy the school, he refers to himself as Minagoroshi, mm. which is Tomino's <laughs> nickname. Kill them all, everyone murderer.
0: Yeah, I didn't catch that. Ho 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 ho
1: ho. Ho oh, ho 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 ho, indeed.
0: And now part two of Tom's research on Shangri-La.
1: Welcome back to part two of our discussion about Shangri-La, the novel Lost Horizon, where the name originated, and Gundam Double Zeta. Last week, I went over the ways that Lost Horizons' view of a crumbling imperial edifice and a world on the brink of civilization-wide collapse anticipated the disintegrations of the grand European colonial empires in the middle 20th century that, in turn, inspired the depiction of the Earth Federation in Zeta and Double Zeta. This week, I'm going to talk a little bit more about how Shangri-La itself is depicted in both works. Now I need to warn you. There is no way for me to do this without spoiling basically all the major surprises of Lost Horizon. The book is very nearly 90 years old now, so I think the statute of limitations on spoilers has expired, but nonetheless, consider yourself warned. There are going to be spoilers in this segment. If you don't want to be spoiled, you should pause the podcast now and go read Lost Horizon before continuing. It's not that long, although I am obliged to warn you that this is a book from the 1930s and it is peppered with casual racist slurs of various kinds. Anyway, if you still want to read it, I'll wait. Okay, everyone who wants to has finished reading Lost Horizon and is ready for me to continue? Great. Now... Within the world of Gundam's Universal Century, the reasons to name the first colony Shangri-La seem evident enough. Like the literary Shangri-La that preceded it, this first colony is a small, fragile oasis surrounded by inhospitable terrain. The mountains and high-altitude plateaus that surround Shangri-La are very nearly as hostile to human life as the vacuum of space. And in both cases, there is only a thin barrier a natural rock wall, the metal shell of the colony, maintaining the precarious paradise within. The valley that houses Shangri-La and its attached community even has roughly the same proportions as a space colony. It's five miles across and about a dozen or so miles long, compared to the colonies four miles across and twenty miles long. When the valley's agriculture is described, it sounds like the way characters in Gundam sometimes talk about the agricultural pods that feed the colonies. To quote, For the valley was nothing less than an enclosed paradise of amazing fertility, in which the vertical difference of a few thousand feet spanned the whole gulf between temperate and tropical. Crops of unusual diversity grew in profusion and contiguity, with not an inch of ground untended." Between those clear physical parallels, Shangri-La is also shorthand in the modern lexicon for a remote but idyllic retreat, a place where you can go to escape the cares of the world. Countless resorts, hotels, and spas, as well as similar facilities, have capitalized on this for their own profit. A simple search for Shangri-La on a travel booking website returned around 900 different options around the world. So, it's good marketing. The corporations that built and managed the colonies wanted to attract settlers, and stamping appealing names like Shangri-La or Green Oasis on the outside does that much better than something utilitarian like Side One, Colony One. However, there is a darker aspect there as well. Of course, there is. This is Gundam. It's well established in the fiction that the colonists who left Earth to make their homes amid the stars were not altogether willing. The means by which they were coerced into doing so is not clear. Were they pushed onto shuttles at gunpoint? Or was it poverty, the lash of hunger, and the promise of a chance at a better life that motivated them? But whatever it was, their separation from Earth was not amicable, and most of them probably knew that they would never return. Think about that old coffee farmer aboard the White Base in the early episodes of First Gundam. As the opening narration in the very first episode of Gundam said, the emigres to the colonies knew that they were going to die up there. And here is where I reveal the first secret of Shangri-La. Once you arrive, you cannot leave. As part of a rule instituted to protect the tiny little paradise from outside contamination, those who learn the secrets of its existence and whereabouts must live out the rest of their lives in pleasant but non-negotiable confinement within the valley. Lost Horizon depicts Shangri-La and the Blue Moon Valley unambiguously as a paradise, ideally suited to the temperament and psychological needs of the main character, Conway. But Double Zeta's Shangri-La is, despite its similarities, no kind of paradise at all. And I'd like to worry at this for a moment because I think it's a kind of refutation of Lost Horizon's ideas about the world. Both Shangri-Las are sharply divided societies. In the book, Shangri-La is divided between the monks in the monastery who lead lives of intellectual pursuit and physical luxury while perpetually just a little bit high on a local berry that produces a mild narcotic effect versus the farmers of the valley who are described as a simple, happy people. The valley people, we hear, have few laws, few crimes, and fewer conflicts because the monks in the monastery have taught them, quote, good manners. Likewise, we are told that the valley people love and revere the monks, feeding them and serving them when necessary, not just willingly, but eagerly. The monastery, on the other hand, has imported bathtubs from Akron, Ohio, fine china tea sets, grand pianos, harpsichords, vast libraries full of all the greatest products of Western scholarship, not to mention central heating and modern plumbing. The valley people have, quote, tiny lawns and weedless gardens, painted tea houses by a stream, and frivolously toy-like houses. The state of things in Gundam's Shangri-La is similarly divided between the rich and the poor, but the divide is not so amicable. The poor, like Judo and his crew, manifestly do not love and revere the rich who live in luxury a scant few miles away. Certainly, they have not been inculcated with, quote, good manners. In fact, as Nina observed last episode, it seems like the Mashimas of the world are actually much more concerned with the bad manners displayed by Shangri-La's poor than they are with the poverty and its deprivations as for quote few laws and few crimes ha but what about social mobility in a society marked by a sharp class divide like those in the two shangri laws is it nonetheless possible for someone born into poverty to join the upper class Judo certainly seems to believe that such a thing could be possible when he talks about making enough money to send Lena to an uptown school where she can rub shoulders with the children of the elite and presumably go on to lead a better life. But who can say how realistic this idea of his actually is? And as for Judo, if he continues on his current path, something like the life of Gemon Bajak may be the best thing that he can hope for. Or, like so many impoverished young people, joining the army, if a yug counts as an army at this point, otherwise may as well call it joining a gang, is his most reliable chance to improve his station. However, Judo seems reluctant to accept a role as defender of the status quo that has so recently been crushing him and all of his friends underfoot. In Lost Horizon, the divide between monastery and village might be more palatable if the monastery were of the village in the way that you would expect, given the utter isolation of the place. But in fact, the villagers are actually quite effectively excluded from the monastery for reasons that are, whew, just about as racist as you would expect from a book written in the 1930s. And to explain this, I will need to reveal the second and third secrets of Shangri-La. Alright, here's the thing. Despite its outward appearances, Shangri-La is not actually, in any meaningful sense, a Buddhist monastery. It was founded by a Capuchin friar named Perot, born in Luxembourg in 1681, who got lost while exploring the hinterlands southwest of what is now Beijing. He wandered into the already inhabited valley, was accepted by the people there, sort of converted them to Christianity, and I say sort of because it didn't stick, and he had them build Shangri-La as a Catholic monastery on the ruins of an abandoned Buddhist one. That's secret number two. Secret number three is that Perot resided there until he was very old, more than a hundred years old, and then he just sort of failed to die. He lay down, expecting to die, months passed, and then he got up again, very much not dead. And then he continued on, not dying, for the next 140 some odd years. In that time he started to gather other monks from among the handful of travelers who stumbled into the valley every so often. Some lived normal lives and died normal deaths, but a number of them managed the same trick of not dying that Perrault himself had pioneered. By a combination of narcotic berries, meditation, moderation, and studiously not caring too much about anything, their aging slowed dramatically, and the centuries to come unwound before them. They were not immortal, but they counted days as we ordinary humans count hours. But how, you might ask, does this exclude the people of the valley? Well, it turns out that not everybody gets the same benefits from the longevity practices of the monastery. And wouldn't you know it, but there seems to be an awfully gosh darn familiar hierarchy to who benefits the most from it. Tibetans get almost no benefit. Han Chinese get a very small boon. And then the, quote, Nordic and Latin races of Europe are the most suitable. As for all the rest of the people of the world... As far as the novel is concerned, they may as well not exist, and we can draw what inferences we like from that. This third secret about the very nearly perpetual lives of the people who reside in the monastery warrants some further examination, because I think it has implications for judo and company. For all that Tomino loves to say adults are the enemy of children, that only children can guide us into the future, and adults need to shut up and listen to children, etc., etc., One of the major themes of Gundam so far has, I think quite undeniably, been that kids need to just grow up already. This messaging is not without its prevarications and its ambiguities. Gundam loves nothing so much as ambiguous messaging. But even so, the first third of both of the prior shows was dedicated to showing how the harsh realities of the world turn a passionate, emotional boy into a hard-eyed killer, and the price of his reluctance to accept adulthood is paid in the blood of his friends. If that rule holds for Double Zeta, then we are still solidly within the boyhood part of Judo's story. Perhaps Shangri-La, the Gundam one, creates a space for Judo and his friends that allows them, within the arc of the story, to forestall emotional aging to remain children engaged in children's games, not just underdeveloped adults engaged in the deadly serious business of warfare. Perhaps that is why Judo's battles with Mashima and Gemon can be so farcical. This is absolutely the longest nobody-gets-killed stretch in Gundam. Indeed, no one has died since Sayugusa, and that was in the port, in a kind of liminal or border zone between the adult world outside and the perpetual childhood of Shangri-La. When the monks of Shangri-La Monastery, who are not quite immortal but not exactly mortal either, and who I will therefore call semi-mortal, when the semi-mortal monks leave the shelter of their valley refuge, they age rapidly. It is as though all the years they had forestalled were in fact waiting in ambush just beyond the valley's borders. Perhaps it will be the same for Judo and company and long forestalled adulthood with all its terrors will rush to meet them if someday they should leave the shelter of Shangri-La. Lost Horizon is all framed as a story told by Conway to an old friend who discovers him in a hospital in central China. Conway himself disappears after relating his tale, and in the epilogue two of his old boarding school friends discuss the fantastical story and their own efforts to find some evidence of Shangri-La's existence. One calls it an exercise in balancing the probabilities, and, based on what they've learned, they can't say that the scales tip very emphatically in either direction. But if the story is false, is it a simple lie, or has Conway lost touch with reality? Many who knew him after his time as a frontline soldier in World War I do think that he's gone a bit mad. In the epilogue, as his friends are discussing him, quote, Rutherford paused again, as if inviting a comment, and I said, As you know, I never saw him after the war, but people said he was a good deal changed by it. Rutherford answered, Yes, and he was, there's no denying that fact. You can't subject a mere boy to three years of intense physical and emotional stress without tearing something to tatters. People would say, I suppose, that he came through without a scratch. But the scratches were there, on the inside.
0: Next time on episode 3.5, No Such Thing as Free Lunch, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 6 and... Too real, Gundam, too real! The gig economy. A roof over their heads and three square meals a day. The real looters. Gravity can be such a pain. Astonaji at the end of his rope. Wine, wine, wine. There goes the neighborhood. What price freedom? And Gerderchan saves the day you will see the battlefield of new types.
1: Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music this season is New York City, Instrumental, by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La was performed by the MSB Players, and included Deep in Space Synth Loop, 120 BPM, by Alexander. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, gundampodcast.com. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at Podcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinion with the world by shouting, With their skills and enthusiasm, if Shinta and Coom were given a mobile suit back in Zeta, Zeon would have been defeated already. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. The Wrong Gundam Opinion this week comes from Hobbs5226. Thank you, Hobbs. And thank you for listening. All right, I think I know how I want to start this episode. So unless you have a a competing idea.
0: No, please,
1: lead us in. All right, I'm going to get started just right now. Just going to go and do it.
0: Do it. Geze, not
3: geese.
0: (laughs) I'm irritated, but it's not a line I can deliver with that feeling. (laughs) Also, the mobile suit should be called a geese.
1: (laughs) I'm not saying you haven't been feeling that. (laughs) I'm just wondering, why is this week of unrelenting horror different from all the other weeks of unrelenting horror?
0: New, fresh horrors. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 500... (laughs) I wish it were 500. (laughs) When he's landed the geese outside the school.
1: I think it's Geze. Yeah. (laughs) What? No, I'm just imagining... This scenario where they go to the writer and they say, all right, we need you to write us an episode that covers Judo deciding to join the Arkham." We're gonna call it Judo's Decision. And the writer says, all right, boss, I gotcha. And he comes back and he says, all right, I wrote that episode you wanted. It's just like 20 minutes of Fa being humiliated. And they're like, that is not what we asked for. And the writer says, oh, was it not? I just, whenever anyone asks me for anything, I always hear that we want you to humiliate Fa for 20 minutes.
0: But don't you see, Fa is so bad at her job that Judo has to step in. Depressed pixie new type girls. I think I've just like over myself at this point. I can't talk. I can't talk into the mic. Oh no. Paralyzing, performing, performance anxiety.
1: And I don't have a wrong gun opinion yet.
0: Okay. You can record it whenever.
1: Yay! Recording it later.
0: We're gonna be
3: sucked in!
2: (laughs) We're gonna be sucked in!
3: We're gonna be sucked in! (laughs) Our poor neighbors. Morning, everyone.
1: (laughs) Try that one again. Just you.
3: Okay. Okay, I'm on a spaceship. He's going. It's
1: the 80s. Everything is over the top, especially your shoulder pads. You take all the space. Okay. You're an equal on this ship.
3: You'll bring us too close to the anomaly. We're going to be, we're going to be. We just went south. (laughs) We're being sucked in. Oh, we're being sucked in. I've been saying it wrong all the time. There you go. Well, we'll cut all of those. No. No you'll, br- no, you'll bring us too close to the anomaly. We're being sucked in. Okay, Lieutenant, we're approaching the court.
2: That was no. We're we're.